Become a LARB member today during our summer member drive and join Editor-in-Chief Boris Draliuk, other LARB members, and my co-host, Medea Ocher, for the book club discussion on Claire Fuller's Unsettled Ground. If you sign up at the book club level by July 27th, you'll receive a copy in the mail ahead of the discussion. Join today at lareviewbooks.org slash join, and we'll make sure you always have a book in hand. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Rivka Galchin about her new book, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. I really love this book, actually. I didn't know what to expect at first because it takes place in the 17th century. It is about the mother of Johannes Kepler, the mathematician and astronomer who was in real life accused of witchcraft. And I just didn't, I didn't know where we were going. I didn't know where we were headed when I picked it up, but it was so great and funny and interesting and really heartbreaking there at the end. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I I find the 17th century is not always my (laughs) go-to. I'm much, no, more of a, so <laughs> I'm much more of a 19th century girl for sure. So uh-huh. I think I get nervous when I see, you know, 16 or 15 written down. I'm like, Phew, I don't, I don't want to go back there, especially if I'm reading something. But I have to say this unfolded very pleasantly um, and with a modern day pacing. Yes, I, I thought really 17th century setting, modern day pacing. And I was just really um, devouring it. And it's so funny. And as you say, very poignant. And, and Rivka is so charming. And also she's your friend, as you admit in the intro. She is, yes. Full disclosure. She's uh, an old friend. Um, she was my professor in my freshman year of college. She was in her MFA program at Columbia. I was taking a, a course that we all had to take and she was teaching it and she was just absolutely wonderful and lovely and she still is. So hmm. yes, it was really nice to have her as a guest on the show. Great. Well, let's listen to that interview. Great. Let's do it. Today, we're talking to the writer and novelist Rivka Galchin, whose new novel is called Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. Galchin's debut novel, Atmospheric Disturbances, and her short story collection, American Innovations, were both New York Times Best Books of the Year. She's also a regular contributor to The New Yorker, whose editor selected her for their list of 20 under 40 American fiction writers back in 2010. That's about six years after I first met Rivka at Columbia, where she was my professor, and she was lovely, and she's been a dear friend ever since. Galchin's new novel, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, takes place in 17th century Germany during the plague and the Thirty Years' War. It fictionalizes the real-life story of Katharina Kepler, the mother of astronomer and mathematician Johann Kepler. Katharina, an elderly widow who seems to care most for her cow, chamomile, is accused of being a witch by another woman in the small town of Leonberg. Soon, the entire town is giving testimony to Katerina's apparent wickedness. Katerina's side of the story is told through her neighbor, Simon, who acts as her guardian. But as a bookseller later says to Simon, people don't like an old lady story. The novel is told through both fictionalized testimonials as well as actual translated historical documents. Rifka, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on the book. I loved it so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to even see you. 
on this screen, this secret radio screen. Yeah, thank you, Rivka, for being here. And I too really love the book. I was wondering if you could just situate us, like Dan mentioned, it is based on a true story and it takes place in the 1700s. But beyond that, maybe you could just situate us a little bit more where and when Katerina lived and who she was as a real person and how you discovered her story. I actually came to Katerina's story because I just wanted to read about her son, Johannes Kepler, and there weren't sort of really, there wasn't a lot available, but there was this kind of magnificent book by the scholar Ulrika Rublak called The Astronomer and the Witch. And it gave a lot of Katarina's life. And the same scholar also had actually done a lot of work on that time period. So Katarina was very unusual in several ways. So she had four children who sort of lived to be adults and all except for one were quite successful. And she managed it basically on her own. She was widowed pretty early on. And even before she was widowed, her husband had a lot of problems. It was not like a great source of support. So Katerina was unusual in, in a number of ways. And one of them was simply that she was quite successful and she sort of managed all on her own to support these children. Johannes Kepler, the astronomer, and his mother were in a sense kind of nobodies from nowhere. They're in a kind of nowhere town. They have citizenship, which is something, but they don't really have any status or really much money. It's basically a peasant life and only through a little bit of luck and was Johannes able to get an education. So she was someone who made all that happen. In fact, she was even someone who took her son out to see a comet when he was very young. So she was an unusual woman in just her, in some ways by choice and in some ways because it was foisted upon her. And another thing was that people didn't really live as long as she lived. They were usually dying about 30 years earlier than she had died. And so she was probably the oldest woman in town when everybody turned on her. Also in the town, there's mention of hard times. And so Dea said this was happening during a plague and during a war. That's kind of obliquely referenced in the novel, but was it, it was an especially hard time in which she lived or it seems like all time then was hard, but... Yeah, I think both of those things, like you said, are true. Like all time then was hard. And the way that like, I think comes across to us best is just the child mortality rate and just how that was just the norm. And everyone grew up losing a lot of siblings and a lot of children. But it was an unusually difficult time. There was a kind of, I mean, he's seen by history to be a kind of feckless emperor who just was sort of busy thinking about the wrong things. And so there was this great sense of instability. There was a transition of power that was not going smoothly. It was also an unusual set of harsh winters right before that. So there was a lot of hunger and more than the normal level of hunger. So it was a difficult time. And the 30 Years War starts basically a few years into Katerina's trial, but there's a lot of things that lead up to it. So there's already the sense of danger and the sense of, you know, they're already sort of developing tougher rules about who can leave the city and come into the city and at what hours. They're putting a lot of more difficult restrictions, even on like whether you can stay up late at night, because something that was seen as a threat was sort of women staying up late at night, basically spinning yarn and having spinning bees. So that was made illegal because it was like a time when people were basically sharing too much information. Also, Katerina is a Lutheran, as is Johannes, which they're in a relatively tolerant town, but it does cause a great deal of trouble for Johannes as he makes his way in the world. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask about the religious aspect of the book because Luther does come up relatively early in the text. And part of that, I think, is reflected in terms of the broader structure of the book, which is like the power of testimony, the power of sort of a direct relationship to larger bodies of power rather than them being mediated. And I was curious about, well, maybe you can tell listeners and us, you know, I know close to nothing about like the, the history of Lutherans in Germany, but that sort of context for the characters here, but also what, what you found out about the religious aspects of this character and her real life story. Actually, you know, reading about Martin Luther was one of like my favorite parts of the research, oh. which surprised me. But unlike Johannes Kepler, there's sort of like dozens of biographies of Martin Luther. And although it's a century before, it's obviously like very much like affecting what's going on at that time period. And just by chance, Katerina does share a birthday with Martin Luther to the extent that she's sure of when her birthday is. She's a little bit unsure of the exact date, but she thinks that's what it is. And there is that sense of not to say anything about the Catholics, but when you read about it, you think, oh, well, obviously I would have been a Lutheran because the emotion behind the Lutheran movement, not so much, I'm not talking about doctrine so much, but there was just a sense of, oh my God, I just noticed Rome is incredibly corrupt. I just noticed that sort of people are controlling the narrative of the Bible and don't want people to be able to sort of find meaning in it themselves. So just like all the, just that sense of, shutting it down and maintaining control in a small corrupt group of people or sort of opening it up and spreading the corruption around and letting everyone have a little piece of the corruption and the power. And so you sort of, there was something quite, I don't know, thrilling to sort of make contact with that period because I feel like in some ways Luther comes to the present tense now just as like, you know, the guy who sort of hated Jews and thought all the synagogues should be burned. He had other things about him that were more interesting but it also gave me a sense of what community Katerina and Johannes were part of and sort of what forces they were navigating when they went back and forth. Because Landberg was an unusually tolerant town that let the Catholics be Catholics and the Lutherans be Lutherans. But then if you sort of exited that area, you, you entered into much more treacherous terrain. She has such a strong character in the book. She refuses to admit to being a witch when accused of being one, even though it, it seems it maybe would just get her out of trouble if she just confessed. There's so much humor in her neighbor's description of her doing things that, you know, don't sound particularly witchy, but maybe just a little forceful or nosy or compassionate coming over, you know, to check on her neighbors when they have sick children or asking for favors. And later that's kind of used against her in the trial that she has. I was curious how much of Katerina was your invention and how much you were actually able to get a sense of her character through the documentation of the trial and other things you read. I mean, part of the seduction, I guess, for me of the story was that I immediately, when I was sort of reading about her, it was like, felt like kind of lightning bolt love. I just felt like obsessed with her story. I mean, I sort of set aside everything else to learn more about her. But at the same time, it's definitely an illusion because she's not Kepler. She doesn't have a lot of writings we can look at. She doesn't have letters we can look at. So a lot of it was just sort of a sense of deduction. And even in the documentation from the trial, it's quite spare actually getting to hear her voice. There's only like a few little sentences we actually know 
that she said. We know that when she was sort of asked to performatively cry, to sort of express regret for everything that others had suffered, we know that she said, like, I've cried so many tears in my life, I can't cry anymore. So that's a real thing from the record. And we also know when she was in prison that she asked for like some, basically some hard-boiled eggs and some healthy food. So those were the actually only like little bits of fact to work with in terms of her voice. But somehow with like way more confidence than I normally have, I just felt like I heard a voice for her, which I connected to, for lack of a better term, what I think of as math people, because it seemed to me normal that she probably was a math person because she and everyone sort of remarked how similar her son was to her. He took after her and not after the father. And I think of math people you know, who have been in my family, but in my life, it's just people who have this, this conviction that if you go through the reasoning and show people the error of their thinking, that things will change, that that's somehow consequential, and that the truth is consequential, that reasoning is consequential, and also persuasive. And so I kind of thought like, that's her error in life. Her error is thinking that it matters that in fact, she's not a witch, or that it matters that, in fact, you know, there's this reason to disbelieve that person. Um, Because I was also moved by the way her, it seems like her persecution has a slight Oscar Wilde tinge to it. If she had never said, I'm being slandered, she might never have been persecuted as a witch. So that interested me also just the way that her kind of natural fidelity to truth and logic were what made her vulnerable. So that was like where her voice came to me from, from that idea. And in the book, her voice is, well, it's relayed by another person, by her neighbor, Simon. And so there's always this like somewhat of a remove or that we are aware of at least. Sure. And that I think is, it's doubled by the other voices in the book, which are very much voices, not of reason, but of rumor. And, you know, that seems like, as you were saying, that's kind of where she goes wrong. She just doesn't totally realize the strength of what rumor can do, right? And what like illogic and superstition can do. But I was wondering like, what, is there one of those that pulls at you more? Do you feel compelled more by rumor? Because it's such a strong power, right? I don't think any of us are really immune to it. I certainly am not, I think. But I think I would like to side more with the power of like reason and logic, that math person. (laughs) Um, But I was wondering if you have like, because you had to embody so many voices that were like on the side of rumor, if there were some sympathies of yours lie toward that end, as much as they might lie toward the end of Katerina and what she was going through. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like a few ways about it. Like I feel on the one hand, I've often thought of rumor as this kind of like this space for the powerless to share information that's forbidden, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a sense that the rumor is this sort of suppressed information. And I think that's why rumor feels so kind of delicious is you sort of feel like I'm not supposed to have this information, but I'm getting it. And that's why I think it acquires this aura of truth. And of course, sometimes it, it probably is true. Like sometimes Sometimes rumors are true and they do disseminate in this rumor way because for some reason they can't come out through the main channels. But at the same time, I feel like that's like one of those things where that's probably the case, I don't know, 3.7% of the time. And, you know, all the rest of the time, it's just a really great way to 
be malicious. You know, I sort of was thinking like, well, there is something about feeling helpless and powerless, having, you know, whatever it is, like lost your children, grown old, like all the sort of explanations for why that's happening would be, of course, completely unsatisfactory. And so rumor is this kind of wonderfully creative space where you come up with another idea for how things are happening. And it's probably more, you know, soothing to one's ego. It's not like I didn't make a mistake or God doesn't care for me or I'm being punished. Those are really like unpleasant stories. And I feel like rumor allows this space to build a different story. So I am sympathetic to all the kind of horrible people, including myself, like who can think to themselves, I'd rather have a comforting story than a true story. You know, something that's interesting in the book is that, you know, we can feel people gaining power from calling someone else a demon and interpreting, you know, certain really simple, simple actions as evil because it gives them the upper hand. And of course, that's something that seems very applicable to the present as well. But at the same time, Katerina, as much as she's a math person, she's also an herbalist. She's someone that sees revenants. She's a person who's spiritual and in touch with the spiritual side of life. And she has this folksy relationship to cows. And so I like how it wasn't so much a dichotomy that there was room for people to both believe the same, but you know, maybe in one sense in bad faith and in her sense, more in good faith. And also, I think it's interesting that she was an herbalist, which we think of as kind of folk medicine and persecuted for that in some ways. But then her son was a scientist and he was persecuted for that as well. So just that like spectrum of belief. I was wondering if you could talk about that. You know, I guess like that time period is often described as this transition from the magical world to the scientific world. But I feel like And that magic term can be sort of either feel wonderful or feel backwards and anti-vaccine or whatever it might be. But just like you said, like it was really important to me that the person who actually says everybody knows your mother and a witch is in the book is Katerina. And she says it sort of meanly to someone else when she, you know, when she loses her temper a little bit. That was really important to me. And the herbalism that she had was really interesting to me because... First of all, there's all these really interesting books from that time period and a little bit earlier even where kind of like the Brothers Grimm later went and tried to collect the stories of kind of the peasants and the old ladies. There were kind of, you know, fancy people with a strong interest in botany who also went to kind of go collect this, you know, hodgepodge of knowledge, some of which was sort of accurate and some of which wasn't accurate at all. But When I learned a little bit about her herbalism, she really does sound like a scientist. She's sort of like, there was a specific kind of rash that her mother-in-law had, and she did all these kind of variations and developed, literally developed like a treatment for the rash by kind of altering the quantities of the different components. And she was a pretty good, uninstitutionally affiliated physician, you know, and certainly as good as all the crazy history of medicine where they did like all sorts of things that were totally wrong. So that interested me the way that the herbalism was both a genuine area of science when you sort of looked closer at the description, but also, of course, like could quickly be turned and feel like a kind of supernatural 
area and, and a poison because, you know, medicine and poison are sort of the same word. So it just seemed wonderful. And actually, like, just by chance, I feel like it's like an ongoing story, the kind of woman herbalist outside of an institution. Like, we nowadays think of it mostly as, like, this area in the drugstore that's, like, covered neither by food nor by drug. And so it's just full of charlatans and, like, maybe a few real things because it's it's unregulated and you're allowed to say anything you want about sort of green algae and none of it has to be proven. But at the same time, there's so much real knowledge there. And I was like reading about something else and the woman in China who won a Nobel Prize in medicine for coming up with a cure for malaria came up with the cure by sort of looking at ancient texts and seeing like, what were they using back then? And of course, not going straight from that, but sort of using that as the basis for her inquiries. And she sort of basically made her discovery in that way. So I just thought it's like an interesting loop of abracadabra and science, (laughs) even today. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Ruth Gauchin, author of Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Zakia Dalila Harris on the line with us today. Zakia's new book is a debut novel. It's called The Other Black Girl, and she's joining us to give us a book recommendation. Zakia, what book are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend Lester by Raven Leilani. It is... Ooh, tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, young Black woman who also happens to work in publishing and is trying to find her way. Um, I mean, that sounds really generic, but she is involved with a a man um, who is married, a white man, I should add, and her relationship with him and then his wife and then their Black daughter who is adopted. That gets very uh, thorny. But I think what I love most about this is just the writing. It's so raw. It really makes you uncomfortable in the best kind of way, where you you wonder where the, the characters, why are they doing what they're doing? Where is this character going? What's going to happen? All of these things. Uh, and this character is messy, but the prose is just so gorgeous that it's so good. Highly recommend it. That sounds really great. How did you come to it? Well, having been a a book Twitter person over the last year, very new thing for me, but I've been seeing Lester everywhere during the pandemic. It came out last summer, I believe. And the cover is really what struck me. Besides, of course, being on so many different lists, it's got this beautiful, like, uh, just luminescent, like, gorgeous cover that kind of reminds you of like 70s funk Um, and there's hair imagery it's just really gorgeous and I heard people talking about it my editor was talking about it and as soon as I had some time I devoured it in like a few days it sounds great I would say it's like a really great summer read yes yes right it is page turner yes Okay, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Sure. Lester by Raven Leilani. Thank you so much, Zakia. Yeah, of course. 
We've been talking to Zakia Delila Harris. Her new book is called The Other Black Girl. Our summer member drive has launched. To kick off the drive, we're featuring a joint membership with the Hana Rent Center and gearing up for our summer book club featuring Claire Fuller's Unsettled Ground. Become a book club member this week to receive a copy in the mail or join at any level and get 15% off the book through our partnering store, Collective Oakland. Visit lareviewbooks.org slash join to become a member and get all the perks. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Rivka Galchin, author of Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. Maybe we could talk about this book is mostly written in dictations to other people that are from Katarina's voice or testimonials that are given to a scribe in town. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, letters that Johannes Kepler sent to the Duke. And so there's a sense that there's every time we start a new chapter, somebody is talking to someone else and that the reader is sort of intercepting some kind of communication. And part of it made me feel like, well, the book is partly about the power of testimony, right? And and giving some witness accounts. It's also about the unreliability of testimony. And so that kind of makes, interesting to hear you talk about, you know, giving credence to ancient texts and working one's way from them to like a Nobel Prize when one of the things that one has to juggle when reading testimony and when reading witness accounts and when reading anything really is like, who do you trust and what do you trust? My question is, one thing is like, how do you think about that difficulty of like who to trust and who not to trust and what texts to trust and what texts not to trust. And also, what do you think about the power that testimony has? Because it can be used for good or ill and sort of like a difficult thing to juggle. Yeah, you know, it's funny, like as I was, um, I had a lot of fun writing the testimony, um, mostly because I felt very few. And why did I feel this way? That's another question. Why did I trust my instincts on this, but I felt that very few of the people were just lying. I felt like there was a small number of liars, but I felt that most of, most people believed what they were what they were saying. And I guess there's that like sort of famous mm-hmm. uh, Adorno line about Germans, and I disagree that it's just Germans. I just think it's humans. But the Germans are people who believe their own lies. But I, I sort of feel like humans are people who believe their own. Lies are not lies, but they're just giving you a faithful account of their kind of mixture of desire and daydreaming and fear. And, and, and that it's, it, it's like pretty unreliable, if not corrected. So I sort of think the question when listening to all those testimonies is trying to sort of triangulate, like what, what is the truth thing that's being said but distorted? as it gets to this person's mouth after going through their kind of fears and desires. I feel like I didn't really get to an answer. Like, I mean, the court is like this arena that feels like a wonderful place of justice and where truth has consequences. But then when you get closer up here, here it's the opposite, right? It's sort of like turned on its head. So I have no answers, but it was definitely, those were the anxieties that sort of were went into the composition of the book, but also that idea of the, of the witness, of the witness of something horrible, like a kind of different kind of way of witnessing was 
I think why I was really drawn to having the Simon character in there, he does come from the historical record partially. He's sort of a blending of two other real life figures. But I felt like something horrible is happening to your neighbor. Like that's, I feel like almost none of us have actually been persecuted as witches or even had something truly horrific happen to us. But we've all, I think, seen others go through something really horrific. And there's this feeling like, okay, well, I guess what we can offer is being a witness. And and that feels, of course, like so insubstantial um, a response, even though I think it's probably sort of the best response people have come up with so far. Um, So I kind of thought it was important to me to have a character who was in a sense the me in the book, the person who's like witnessing something really terrible happening, kind of trying to do, he tries to do the best he can by her. He, He does sort of stick his neck out for her to the extent he feels able to. But of course, ultimately he's not quite powerful enough. Even if he were very brave, would it really have made a difference in how she was treated? Probably not. So I, I just, I wanted that character and his, you know, cause his testimony is sort of that weird thing where a novel feels like it's testimony to God. I just want you to know this happened and this was my perspective on it or whatever. Because he has no real audience for his testimony. He kind of thinks he might have one, but it feels like it's that audience of like your inner, your inner God and maybe the outer God or wherever you might locate that sort of third eye. I read an interview with you talking about the book and saying, you know, as you're writing it, you wanted to get far away from the present and not be thinking about contemporary politics, et cetera. Um, and, but also the way I've seen the book received is like, this is a book for that speaks so much to the present time. And, um, and of course it does. And of course, you know, witch hunt, false trials, all those things are always just allegories for political persecution of, of any kind. But at the same time, you know, it seems that the history of calling women witches, which is something I just even came across. I was reading a book about menopause and it was just saying this, you know, that elderly women, just even for what happens to your body, like chin hairs, you know, wrinkles, <laughs> all these things that, 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 like, if you get those things, people are like, you're a witch. I mean, that, that's, that it's common enough that it was spoken about, you know, even in, in a book on a totally different subject. So um, I guess seeing the story through uh, contemporary guides, um, I'm wondering, as you were writing it, if you did reflect back on the present and as you did, if like you were thinking more of political persecution or you were thinking more just of like the depth of misogyny um, that <laughs> has run from the Which past to the present. Which evil was like sort of more on my mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, I, I feel like I have like a writing method which has to do with being like pretty dumb not that I'm like not dumb on not that I'm I'm not always like not that bright but there's like a weird thing that breaks if I sort of reflect too much on like what does this mean or what is the theme here or what does it imply of course like after the book's done I kind of like patch together all sorts of thoughts about all of those things but that's they're never like my my guiding thoughts so I was like mostly like running from the present day. And, 
but of course, totally aware of it because it's impossible not to be aware of it. And it was just like a loudspeaker in everyone's lives every morning, midday, afternoon, and evening. So I feel like it's like very informed by like what's being fled. And I, I feel like uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know which of the sort of large evils, like the, just the general persecution of little people by telling them they're really powerful and doing all sorts of horrible things with their tremendous powers or the kind of gender part because one thing about these partic- this particular time of which trials was so tied up with infant mortality and just like the just total fear of just all about fertility and women, either women exiting fertility or ruining the fertility of others with their envy or um, all of those issues. So I sort of feel like it was like a merger of my own life fears and obsessions, which would be like babies and the kind of latent viciousness of humanity that when given like a tiny token of power, will try and use it to destroy other people kind of for almost no reason. So there does seem to be like some that you're fighting against this impulse and sort of reiterating the sense that like, okay, well, there's always something good, right? That there's something good to be seen aside from the, the sort of latent viciousness of humanity. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that was like, I think I both truly feel that and also like aspire to feel that. And so I felt like, and I felt like my characters were in a similar position where there is like this, especially if you're living, you know, in a, in a time period, including now, sort of where other people are saying all sorts of behaviors or activities or, or races or whatever it is are monstrous then you sort of want to divest the whole idea of power and, and sort of say there's no such, no such thing. Um, so I feel like there's that element, but also I think, like you said, like a sort of spiritual element which wants to see like the monstrousness not as like residing inside of it, any, every, anyone, but maybe being a kind of like weather system that can move in and it kind of brings out the worst in the people because I felt like it was important to me that uh, most of the people basically throwing Katerina under the bus with their testimony seemed like sort of, to me, you know, with a few tiny exceptions, like kind of good faith people who, pretty good faith people, like, I, I sort of felt they were mostly acting in good faith, um, but were vulnerable or susceptible to this ugly story because of something in their life, either suffering or envy or, or fear. There were a few opportunists, but not a lot. Well, I was curious about, Rivka, if you've ever felt that you were at the end when Simon goes to Katerina... Um, he feels like he's going to trial and he, he, after talking to her, feels like he's been acquitted because he had, the reason he, I should explain, the reason that he, um, to listeners who haven't read the book, um, the reason that he feels like he's going to trial is that he, at a certain point, he he does abandon her. Um, and I, I don't think that's a spoiler really, <laughs> but, um, and he feels very guilty about that. After some time, 
he goes to visit her and and he feels very much that he's he needs to atone for having abandoned for not having stood by her as he always says that he would. I guess I was curious about this sense that that we are all potentially on on trial by our friends and family and and perhaps our communities too. Um, I think that might feel like potentially more prevalent today because there are so many ways to be seen, I think, and be seen and judged. And you don't have to live in a small town in order for community to do that. But I wonder if you fear that in some capacity, that you you fear being on trial by others, by of having done wrong and having been deemed as doing wrong, if that's something that you find scary. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I sometimes, uh, you know, I was sort of raised Jewish, but I was also raised in, Nor- in Norman, Oklahoma, and in a sort of like overwhelmingly Christian community. And I often think, oh, I feel like I, my emotional life is actually quite Christian in the sense that I sort of feel like I was born sort of incorrect. <laughs> like I'm already in the, I'm already in the wrong and sort of, uh, that I feel like long, that feeling is just like constant, like that, that, that it's sort of like it's the chance that you can do something good is very slim and the chance that you can do something bad is like, it's like potholes everywhere. So I feel like that, uh, that longing for exoneration is like always quite a human thing to have that feeling all the time. So it's almost like you're going to the trial in hopes of being exonerated because you've already, you're sort of guilty until proven innocent. That's the emotion that makes sense to me. And I feel like, he has something of that emotion, although when you talk about that sense, I feel like uh, of what it feels like now, I feel like the unfair trial feels like it's around now. That's like we're all fearing the unfair trial. Like, I think we all like to think we would pass the fair trial, like we would pass the trial that knew our hearts and really, you know, um, understood our intentions. Um, but there's this like, ever presence, I think, kind of ubiquitous fear of the unfair trial. I think that's what people say when they say they feel like they're self-censoring or whatever it might be, is that they fear the unfair trial. So yeah, so I don't know. But there's that I I, I feel like, you know, different people, some people's inner life is like testimony to the jury. My inner life isn't quite testimony to the jury, but I think that's a pretty common inner life. It's like kind of pleading your case. We deem you innocent. Um, (laughs) And thank you so much, Rivka, for for talking to us. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Medea. That was really fun. We've been talking to Rivka Galchin. Her new book is called Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.